I'm Emma. And I'm Helena. And uh, we work for the MS Trust, which is a charity for people affected by MS. Um, Just a little disclaimer, this is uh, being recorded on Zoom. So if the sound is iffy at any stage, please do bear with us. We'd like to welcome you to our podcast, Multiple Sclerosis, Breaking It Down, and to this episode where we're going to be talking about disease-modifying drugs. So what are disease-modifying treatments, or DMD, or sometimes referred to as uh, disease-modifying drugs, um, DMDs? I think we're kind of doing it interchangeably. On the MS Trust website, we refer to them as uh, DMD, or disease-modifying drugs. Uh, but you'll hear throughout this uh, podcast, you'll hear both. <laughs> <laughs> and they're a group of treatments for people with multiple sclerosis. Most DMDs are for people uh, who have relapsing remitting MS, which we call shortened to RRMS. Uh, but there are actually now also some licensed for people, uh, drugs licensed for people with progressive MS. For people with RRMS, disease-modifying drugs reduce the number of relapses you might experience, as well as reducing the severity of any relapses you may have. And there's a wide range of drugs approved by the NHS uh, in the UK, and each drugs offer a different combination of benefits and risks. In this podcast, we're going to be chatting to neurologist Kate, who's going to explain some of the ins and outs of taking different DMDs and how you can go about choosing one. So then after that, we'll be chatting with Sam, who's a person living with MS, and she's going to share some of her experiences of choosing different DMDs or disease-modifying drugs. And the way that uh, people are offered DMDs these days is quite different from back in the day when I was diagnosed. There was a, a lot of wait-and-see approach back then. Um, but these days, a lot of neurologists favouring to offer people as soon as the they possibly can I think. Why this approach has changed is one of the things we'll actually be talking to uh, Kate about so let's have a listen to the chat with Dr Kate just now. Today we are going to be chatting about disease-modifying treatments in MS, and this is an ever-changing world, and it can be a little bit confusing. For example, back when I was diagnosed in 2007, there were, I think, four drugs to choose from, and, and now there's about 16 and 18 if you're in Scotland, I think. And back in 2007, I was told them wait and see, rather to the more sort of common approach nowadays to, to treat early. So to help us navigate all these tricky questions that people might have um, and untangle the tricky subject, we have consulted neurologist uh, Dr. Kate Petherham with us today. Hi, Kate. Thank you for coming Hi. on. Pleasure. Um, so shall we start at the beginning? And if you could sort of tell us a little bit about what are DMDs and uh, how do they work? Absolutely. Thank you, Helena. And thank you for inviting me to do this. So uh, disease modifying drugs or disease modifying therapies, and I would use the terms interchangeably, uh, are basically medications or drugs that are that and they all alter the immune system in some way. And so they're targeting the bit of MS, which is inflammatory. So we recognize MS as a, as a condition that is an autoimmune condition. So the immune system becomes overactive for reasons we don't fully understand. And then it starts attacking, it sets off an inflammatory process, which then damages the myelin sheath in the brain and the spinal cord and sometimes the optic nerve. So and we know that this inflammatory process happens uh, in throughout the course of MS, but most commonly and, and most predominantly at the beginning, at the, at the onset of multiple sclerosis, uh, so early on in the disease, that's when the inflammatory process is most prominent, although it can continue throughout the condition. And so the disease-modifying therapies are all drugs which affect the immune system in some way and try and either suppress it or modulate it. 
and therefore try and prevent this inflammatory activity occurring. In broad terms, that's what they all do. They all do it in slightly different ways, as you can imagine. So that's that's essentially kind of how they how they act. Now you mentioned um, disease modifying drugs and disease modifying treatment. I, have, I see DMDs and DMTs all the time being used, but they're basically exactly the same thing. Exactly. And it's I guess using the term therapy allows us to kind of maybe open up the the kind of way for other therapies, which like we can talk about stem cell therapies perhaps mm-hmm. a bit later on. So again, so perhaps a bit more all encompassing, but essentially I think of it as just, they're the same things. So, yeah. And as I mentioned, when I first did the little intro, that a health professional used to suggest opting to wait and see approach certainly was the case back in, back in the day when I was diagnosed. Uh, and nowadays we see much more about treating early. Um, what's the sort of main reasons for this shift? So I think uh, partly driven by the fact that we have so many more drugs available now. And I think the evidence is is becoming more that the treatments are more effective the earlier you use them in the disease course. So we've got increasing evidence that, yeah, if you if you identify a patient that we think is at high risk of having further attacks or further accruing further disability, then that's that treating early is is important. Now, that's not to say that we don't still use a waste and see approach in some people. And I think it's important to say that actually when we choose, and we may come onto this later, but when you're choosing a disease modifying therapy, it's not just about how well the drug works or, you know, or how efficacy it is. So we, I think as medics and, and some patients are very focused on this is how well does the drug work? Mm. And we want to use the most highly efficacious drugs as soon as possible. But actually that's not the only thing that people, patients are concerned about. So the other things to consider are how that drug fits in with your lifestyle, how, you know, what the risks of that drug are, what the side effects of that drug are. And I think the other thing is actually you know, despite having all this research and all these drugs available, we still, there's so much we just don't know about MS. And one of the things about MS that I've learned, and I'm sure anybody that's got MS has learned, is how unpredictable it can be. Mm. And so actually, when you first meet somebody with MS, you know, when I first meet somebody in clinic, and even if I've caught the, uh, and particularly if I've caught the, the condition very early on, is that you can't predict what's going to happen in the next few months or years. And and there are various strategies we use to try and predict outcomes and prognosis, including MRI markers, you know, number of relapses in the first few years or months. Um, But then none of them are none of them are foolproof. And we do know from kind of long term studies that there are some people with MS that do really well without any treatment. Hmm. And I think that's what makes it difficult to be absolutely sure when you're first meeting somebody and why sometimes it is best to step back and say, well, actually, you know, if you're not sure, let's let's wait and see. Let's repeat the scan in a few months time and let's assess how active it is. And I think also we we don't. Well, I think as health professionals, we often forget what a devastating diagnosis this can be to receive. Mm. And actually, it does take patients some time to process that diagnosis. And so diagnosing and treating, whilst we want to treat people as soon as possible, often, often people need a bit of time to process the diagnosis before they can then take on, you know, the decision of of deciding what and this vast Mm. array of treatments to then kind of choose. I I guess with it being in so many things to choose from as well, it's it's quite tricky, isn't it? Because it's not like when you get a a certain condition and you have one one thing (laughs) to treat it. Exactly. And like you, I mean, I I was going to say, so I always often say to people, you know, if we'd been having this conversation 15, 20 years ago, the decision would have been easy in a way, Mm. you know, we'd have been deciding 
a whether to start or not or you know we'd have been choosing between essentially two drugs mm. broadly speaking and now it's much you know the choice is is massive really isn't it yeah um and i suppose you already touched on this a little bit about but but there is a different approaches when it comes to picking a dmd and some people might want to sort of you know hit it with all you got straight away other people worry about side effects or drugs being too heavy duty i guess is there a sort of I think you already answered it more or less, but there, there isn't really a right or wrong way with this, is there? There isn't. I don't think there is a right or a wrong way in that, you know, you know, I've mentioned that there was more than one reason for choosing a particular drug. And I think if there was a right or wrong way, then we would only have a certain number of mm. drugs available. So we don't really know what the right, I think you're part of the question is, is should we be, you know, using high efficacy drugs right from the beginning? So what is sometimes known as an induction approach or should we be using an escalation approach and so starting at a low efficacy drug and, and building upwards and I, I think there isn't a right or wrong answer I think we've got increasing evidence that from an efficacy point of view so in terms of drugs um, preventing relapses and preventing accumulation of disability in the short term and and MRI activity that a high efficacy approach so an induction approach is 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 superior to an escalation approach so, so that's that and that but that's data from big registries so that tells you what maybe a thousand people are doing on a mm. kind of you know statistical point of view but it doesn't tell you about the individual person uh, and so what what is happening I think in the U, well I know in the UK is a, is a study to really exactly look at this and randomize patients to either um, an escalation approach or, or a high efficacy approach from the beginning so we are trying to answer this question with trials uh, you know, I think we are starting to get information registries about high efficacy being, you know, more efficacious as one might expect from the mm. from the terms. But as I've said, there are other reasons why people might choose other drugs, and other reasons why there so it isn't there isn't a right or wrong approach essentially. When you look up these drugs and 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 when you come to choose one, I guess people will come across reading about side effects. And I think one of the things that we see at the, uh, I run the MS Trust Facebook group, and there's so many people dropping on there to say, I've been offered this drug. What's the side effects like? What's it? And everybody says different things. I mean, it's never like everybody gets the same side effects from, from, from the drug, but obviously they can result in side effects. Uh, how do you actually prepare yourself for these? Uh, so I think it really depends on the drug that you're you're going to go on to. I think being prepared is really important. So I, and but there's also a balance between being prepared and being over prepared because mm -hmm. I think if you're kind of, you know, if you're, and and this will be an individual thing as well. So I have patients who come and I've maybe suggested not not necessarily disease modifying therapies but other medications. And they won't take it because they read the patient information leaflet that kind of lists lots of side effects and, and are just terrified. And there are some patients that, you know, are perhaps more likely to get side effects because of the concern about them. That being said, I think there are certain side effects from disease modifying therapies that you can prepare yourself for. And I think it helps to be prepared for them. So as an example, so dimethyl fumarate or tecfidera, we're very aware of the side effects of the gastrointestinal upset. So diarrhea, abdominal pain, particularly within the first six to four, six to eight weeks of being on the medication. And that can be ameliorated by taking or kind of prevented in some part by taking the medication on a full stomach. 
and particularly having a high protein or high fat meal with the medication. And we have a kind of top tips for taking Tepidera fact sheet, which we'll give to patients when they start on that medication. And that is really helpful. And the other side effect I'm sure you're aware of with dimethyl fumarate is the flushing that patients can get. And that's the challenge I think with that is that, and I always tell patients it's often very unpredictable and it doesn't necessarily mm. happen when you've taken the medication and it doesn't necessarily happen every day or every week. And so that's quite difficult to prepare for. Yeah. But on the other hand, if you know that it's a side effect of the medication and so you know what it is, I think psychologically that helps. Yeah. Um, and some people recommend taking it, you know, an aspirin to, to bring those side effects down or, and things like that. So that's an example, I suppose. Another example is with things like the interferon, the injectables. Actually, some people do get nasty flu-like symptoms, you know, in the period of time after they've had the injection. So simply pre-medicating yourself with some ibuprofen or paracetamol is really sensible. Um, moving on to the kind of, you know, the more high, the infusible medications, the things like the Ocrevus, the alamtuzumab, we are aware that these come with infusion reactions and we give pre-medications to try and prevent those happening. Again, I do warn patients that they're going to happen because I think if you don't, then if they happen, then people are worried about them. Mm. So I think it's important to be informed about the medication that you're on and what med- and what side effects may happen. And then you can, I think it helps to be pre-warned. And, you know, your MS nurse and MS neurologist, particularly once you've chosen a drug, should be more than happy to go through those those side effects with you. Apart from side effects, are there any sort of key considerations when uh, choosing a DMD? Oh gosh, so many, so many. <laughs> so um, so lots really. And uh, and I'm, I don't need to tell you, I don't think it's a good point to mention that the MS Trust Decisions Aid, the drugs, there's so many variety of drugs. So you've got tablets, you've got injections, you've got infusions in the main part. And everybody will have different feelings about these different methods of administration. So we kind of assume that patients don't like injections and would rather have a tablet. I think that's the kind of medical preconception, but actually that's not the case for some people. Some people don't like having tablets lying around the house if they've got small children and actually would rather inject on a less than frequent basis. So mode of administration of the drug is, is one of the considerations and, and, and everybody's very individual about that. The other thing which I think is important, particularly given our our cohort of patients are often young women of childbearing age. So we have to bring pregnancy planning into it. So I think people are often a bit confused when when I first meet them in clinic and they say, and I say, so are you planning to have any more children? They're a bit like, "Mm, that's none of your business, right? Um, But actually we're becoming a lot more confident and um, Ruth Dobson, I think, has done previous work and there's lots of information on the MH Trust about the particular drugs and the pregnancy recommendations. But I will have a discussion about patients about whether they're planning to become pregnant anytime soon or in the future, because there are certain medications which we don't recommend to be on during pregnancy. So family planning is a big issue, but it's important to talk about and doesn't, Mm. you know, doesn't, it does change some of the drugs, but not as much as perhaps people think. Yeah. And I guess efficacy and any other risks and side effects. And so I think you have to take those on a case by case case basis so some people are terrified of say cancer and so any drug which carries a slightly increased cancer risk will be a no-no or when we talk about pml as a risk you know progressive multifocal encephalopathy which is one of the risks particularly with natalizumab if you're jc virus positive Mm. then you know some people are terrified of that and won't even consider 
drugs which have a risk of that. So it's all very individual, depending on the individual and, and their kind of thoughts and preferences. And, you know, I'm a big believer in shared decision making. And so, you know, I can have a particular idea based on the, you know, the, the level of inflammation that's demonstrated in a patient's clinical history or MRI scan. And so I can have a particular idea about the group of drugs that I might want to recommend, mm. but actually it, it's then taking that to the patient, finding out what their thoughts and preferences are, and then giving them some information based on that and then sending them and then and bringing them back at another time point to make a decision. So I will rarely, you know, see a patient. I think the trouble is we are under such pressure in the NHS to see and sort things out quickly. Yeah. But I will rarely make a decision on a disease modifying therapy the first time I meet a patient. When we were saying before about there being about 16 drugs, um, I'm guessing most of the time it will be sort of less than 16 that you will consider for a person or? Yes. So the other thing we haven't talked about is the thorny issue of kind of eligibility criteria. Mm. All the drugs have a certain kind of eligibility criteria, which you would need to fulfill for for the drug to be reimbursed by the NHS. And so you're absolutely right. So, So there is, you know, some people by virtue of the, the number of relapses they've had or the activity on their scan will not necessarily be eligible for all the available disease modifying therapy. So we can often hone that down in clinic yeah. uh, to maybe five or six rather yeah. than a scary 16. What sort of questions should people be asking their MS team when they're choosing a DMD? Or is there any other kind of research that people can do themselves before they uh, choose one? Yeah, so I think it is. So I think having an awareness of what their priorities are and what their goals are, and also setting that out together. So I think it's also important to be aware of what the disease modifying therapies are designed and promised to do. And that is to prevent this inflammatory activity. So they're not designed to treat symptoms. And whilst we hope that they will delay or slow down progression they there's actually no guarantee that that will happen and actually the the aim is to prevent inflammatory activity and prevent relapses and with the hope that that will slow down progression in the future so I slightly went off on a tangent there didn't I but what I would always suggest to patients is that they would look at the MS Trust decisions aid and the more detailed information that you guys have on your website and the MS Society have regarding the individual uh, drugs and I and I do recommend your specific the MS Trust, the MS Society, and Shift MS as places to get approved kind of information because there is so much information now on the internet that it can be really bewildering and quite distressing if you're mm. getting kind of uns not unsolicited but un kind of verified information yeah. that may not may not be true and I think that's really important. There's a lot of people with a lot of opinions on the internet, isn't there? So <laughs> there, are, there are indeed, and I think sometimes for very good reason. But you just I I think when you just need that kind of guidance as to what's real and what's not don't you because yeah. it's quite a scary place otherwise and um, so once you started on a dmd how often do you have sort of reviews with your ms team to see whether it's what it's working how it's going how you're feeling yeah so i think that's a really good question and quite a difficult one to answer because there's the ideal and then there's what we're able to achieve within the kind of resource constraints of the nhs so and it depends a little bit on which disease modifying therapy you choose as well. So the likelihood is you'd have more contact with particularly your MS nurse within, say, the first year of therapy. That tends to be the, the year when you have you need more frequent blood monitoring done. 
but you know a lot of times we're doing blood monitoring now we have phlebotomy hubs we're getting that done in the community so that doesn't necessarily mean a mean a kind of nurse visit so it the answer is it's variable Mm. i see people and the recommendations is that you that you see people annually so everybody with ms treatment or not should have a annual review with some with an expertise in MS and that can be your MS nurse or your MS consultant I try and see people on an annual basis so after starting a disease modifying therapy we would aim to re- do a re-baseline scan at six months and then do MRI scans annually thereafter sometimes you might extend the time between the scans depending on what disease modifying therapy you're on but we would also, we offer kind of, you know, and I think most MS services do often, you know, it's a patient initiated follow up. So actually, if you have problems in between time, then please get in contact with us and we'll bring that regular review forward. Um, so it's a difficult question to answer because I think everybody's everybody's service will be set up slightly differently. Mm. Um, and, you know, everybody has slightly different resource abilities as well. So if you're having a certain amount of relapses whilst on, a, a DMD does that mean mean then that you have to think about whether this is actually working or not or if you should be changing yeah I think that's a really interesting question as well and I think we discussed this I've just come from our MSMDT actually and, and we discussed patients and so I think if patients are having clinical relapses and those are definitely new relapses due to new inflammatory activity and I'd often like to see that backed up with activity on an MRI scan mm. I think MR activity plus clinical relapses on a disease-modifying therapy would be a reason to change and, and escalate treatment. Um, there have been kind of attempts to kind of make scores to try and delineate, you know, how many relapses, how many lesions. And I think it, it comes down to individual choice as well. And I think this, so I think clinical relapse and MR activity, I would be pushing someone to change therapy. I think it's a bit more difficult if you've just got MR activity, for example, uh, and say someone's doing really, really well on a, on a disease modifying therapy, which they've say been on for many years, they tolerate well, they're familiar with it, and then they have one new lesion and an MRI scan. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that treatment has failed because actually without that treatment, they may have had many more relapses and many mm. more lesions on the scan. And so I think a lot of patients and a lot of clinicians will tolerate one or two lesions, new lesions on a scan over a period of time, given everything else being stable. Uh, but it would certainly lead to a discussion and a kind of making sure that people are happy on their disease modifying therapy. And like I said before, it's not just me making that decision. It's up to the patient as well. We had a question that went, said, is there a link between relapsing on a DMD and the next line treatment being less effective for you? That is a good question. And I'm not sure I know hard evidence to be able to answer it fully. I suspect it might be out there. So I, I know that so no evidence of disease activity or NADA, which is a term which is kind of banded around. So you heard the NADA three, which is no new relapses, no MRI activity and no progression. And NADA three at two years is a predictor for you know progression at kind of seven years. So the best you do on a disease modifying therapy in the first couple of years denotes how well you'll do in the future. But I suppose you're not asking that. What you're asking is if you then relapse on a and I guess it would depend on the treatment that you'd relapsed on. So if you relapse on a high efficacy treatment, that might suggest your MS is particularly active and you may be mm. less 
likely to do well on future treatments. Um, but I don't think we have the evidence to be able to answer that question accurately. We have some specific uh, questions regarding specific drugs. Um, and this is right. something that I've seen uh, quite a bit. Um, it says, mm -hmm. Are there any recommendation for helping with injection side reaction when taking DMDs? We've heard from a member of the MS Trust community that they've been on Copaxone for a month and the injection sites on their thighs and tummy are settling, but leaving very hard lumps near to the surface of the skin. So I'm going to be a real doctor here and defer that. <laughs> So this is the thing that MS nurses are really good at mm. and, and actually are probably the best source of information. So I think, and so I wouldn't want to give the wrong information out here because I think they're the people that really do manage things like injection sites a lot better. Yeah. So I, my, my kind of gut feeling is to say either ice packs or heat packs kind of just before or after injection sites would be useful. I know that moving your injection sites around, so making sure you're not injecting in the same place more than once. Um, you know not straight after another mm. will help that you know if it's very painful perhaps taking some painkillers to try and, and and settle that pain down uh, but yeah if you if you're if it's still struggling really ask your MS nurse and, you know if it's and if it is um, causing you a lot of bother then you know discuss about an alternative treatment potentially if you're eligible for for it. Um, here's another one that certainly popped up there a lot after COVID or around COVID. Is it safe to stay on Ocrevus while COVID remains prevalent as the treatment can reduce the effectiveness of the vaccines? Yeah. And again, that is a really good question at the moment. So and we, we did have concerns. So the evidence is, is that the Ocrevus does, it went in the first kind of wave of kind of non-vaccinated um patients with MS uh, being kind of with the COVID, first COVID pandemic wave that patients on a anti-CD20 anti treatment such as Ocrevus or Rituximab were at increased risk of hospitalisation and IT, requiring ITU if they got infected with COVID, but not much more than the other comorbidities, so weight, diabetes, smoking. Mm -hmm. But it was there and it was real and we were worried about it. As the pandemic's gone on and vaccination, obviously the, the evidence is that the Ocrevus does reduce the effectiveness of the vaccine, but it doesn't take it to zero and it doesn't do that with everybody. So some people will still mount a response. So it is still first question, first thing to say is it's still worth getting the vaccination mm -hmm. and it's still worth getting boosters because we are seeing people having, you know, increasing efficacy of the of boosters. So it is worth getting further boosters. So, and I think this has to be weighed up against the, the, the activity of your MS and how active your MS was. But I certainly wouldn't be advising patients to stop their Ocrevus because of the current COVID pandemic. COVID is going to be around, mm. I think, with us in some shape, way or shape or form for a long time now. Yeah. And I'm not seeing patients becoming sick and ending up on ITU now. I, I did have patients who were, mm. but we now have much more effective antiviral treatments. And so I think my feeling is that it, it's the risk of MS is probably more than the risk of COVID at the moment. Someone told us that they were eligible for beta ferron 17 years ago, but not now. How can someone's eligibility for MDMD change over time? Um, so it's quite difficult to comment on individual cases, obviously, without mm. knowing the whole story. But the eligibility for the disease modifying therapies do often rely on, you know, relapse within the last 12 months or last 24 months. So if you were eligible for beta ferron 17 years ago because you'd had two relapses 17 years ago, but then you haven't had any relapses for 17 years, then you may not 
and, and you've got no evidence of disease activity on an MRI scan or clinically, that might explain why you're no longer eligible at this point. There are other eligibility criteria such as, you know, for all the disease modifying therapies for relapsing remitting MS require an EDSS of, of 6.5 or below. Mm-hmm. So the ability to be ambulant for at least 20 meters, even you know, with support, is a re- is a requirement for eligibility for the relapsing remitting disease modifying therapy. So there, there may be lots of reasons why eligibility changes. And also the eligibility criteria have changed for the different drugs. So 17 years ago, you would have required two relapses in two years for the interferons. Now you just require one relapse in the last 12 months or MR activity. Here's another one on a specific one. Uh, I've been on Kisimpta, is that how you pronounce it, Kisimpta, for eight months. And my neurologist says my baseline MRI hasn't changed since my last scan in 2020. So why is my mobility worsening by the week? And I think not just Kisimpta, but that this is something we do see uh, quite a lot pop up where people sort of say, oh, my neurologist says I'm fine, but I don't feel fine. Yeah. And I think this is a really common thing we see in clinic as well. And I think it comes back to that point I was making about what what the aim of the disease modifying therapy mm. is. So Casimpta is offered Tumumab, which is one of is the monthly um, anti-CD20 medications, um, very much like Oculizumab. MS is, is in, in part inflammatory condition, but also we're becoming more and more aware that it's in, there's neurodegeneration involved. And so the disease modifying therapies that we have affect the inflammation, but the current disease modifying therapies don't have a lot of significant effect on that neurodegenerative process and the kind of smoldering MS. So it's, it's both neurodegeneration, uh, but also inflammation within the, within the nervous system, which is much more difficult to target with the mm. drugs that we have, which target inflammation kind of in the peripheral nervous system, not peripheral nervous system in the kind of blood. Yeah. Yeah. Smoldering MS is something that we've seen quite a lot being mentioned on, on along the uh, neurologist that we follow on Twitter. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. Could you sort of briefly explain it? Because I, I think it's a quite tricky one to understand. Yeah. So, so there is, so, so it's kind of challenging our kind of dogma that MS is a, an inside is a kind of condition which is started in the periphery with an autoimmune process which starts in the blood and though this immune mediated cells go into the cross the blood brain barrier and then cause damage within the nervous system and that's been the kind of traditional explanation of how MS occurs I think the smoldering MS story kind of wants to reverse that and says that actually MS is a primarily a neurodegenerative condition and actually the inflammation is caused by an over exuberant reaction to this neurodegeneration so if you can imagine this neurodegeneration is causing kind of little bits of the nervous system perhaps to break off and then the immune system is reacting to that and that's why you're getting this over you know these inflammatory activity Um, but it kind of highlights the fact that the ms is is perhaps a neurodegenerative condition primarily and that's why we're not seeing the you know the massive success that we would hope to see if we, you know, giving you anti-inflammatory drugs. Now, I think you can switch that around and say, but actually if we treat the inflammation early, we don't tend to see the neurodegeneration as marked. And so I think there are people that disagree with the kind of the the premise of the smoldering Mm. MS argument. And I suspect like with most things, it'll be a little bit of both. Yeah. Uh, 
but yeah, that's that's kind of my understanding of the smouldering MS. And but I think it also challenges the dogma, which I I, I do believe in that actually MS isn't can't be split up into separate diseases. So you know, we often see it described as relapsing, remitting, mm. and secondary progressive or primary progressive. And I do believe that MS is one condition yeah. and that patients can flip between, you know, it being more inflammatory or less inflammatory. And actually those labels are not always particularly helpful. Yeah. We certainly see people who get the progressive labels feeling very excluded from, from yeah. a lot of uh, things. And I mean, but now there is some treatments um, yeah. coming out more which is nice to see but yeah. um we certainly feel that that's a part of the our community that's been yeah um, and I think very neglected I think we feel that from a kind of from a medical point of view mm. as well as a kind of a sense of frustration that we've you know it's been really exciting it's, an, it's such an exciting time and I came to became an MS consultant in in 2014 when you know all the new drugs were kind of just mm. starting to kind of come into play and it's been a really exciting time to be an MS clinician, but there is this group of patients that I feel that we're not able to help as much as I would like to help. Briefly touched on uh, JC viruses and PML. We had a question about that. Is there any further more recent evidence of increased risk of PML for those with a JC positive result or any more modern enhanced ways of monitoring and managing the risks so patients can stay on, on a DMD? So I'm not really aware of anything kind of new or different. So mm. we still stratify people's risk of PML on natalizumab using their JC virus titer and the amount of time that they've been on, on treatment for. And then you kind of put that into the various calculators and it comes up with a, a risk number depending on whether you've been on pre previous um, treatments as well. So that's the kind of, that, that's still how we stratify people's risk in terms of modern enhanced ways of monitoring, so I guess one thing we are doing more increasingly now is, is extending the interval dosing, so extended interval dosing for people on natalizumab. And certainly we did that for most patients during COVID anyway, putting people to six weekly treatments. Uh, but there is some evidence and that that doing that may reduce the risk of, of PML. So, But anybody with a positive JC virus who's on natalizumab will have more frequent MRI scans so between three to four monthly depending on your titer and the center where you looked after and with the aim that if you did develop PML it would be picked up asymptomatically on MRI scan and therefore the outcomes be much much better. We've already started talking about MS and DMDs when MS progresses. Um, and as we said, there are now actually um, some, some drugs on the market for a progressive MS. Could you tell us a little bit about what, what is offered for people with progressive MS? Yes. So we now have two disease modifying therapies which are aimed at patients with progressive MS. So oculizumab, which is also a treatment for, for relapsing remitting MS, it was licensed for primary progressive MS, I think, in 2018. In the, the clinical trials demonstrated that this reduced the risk of confirmed disability progression by about 20%. You know, one in, four, one in five patients who are on the drug won't become disabled, which, or as you know, won't progress in the same way that mm. they might otherwise have done. So, you know, in some ways, it. so I think it's important to realise that it's, you know, it's not nothing and it's potentially very beneficial for some patients but it's not necessarily going to be stop everybody 
completely progressing Mm -hmm. and it's not going to stop it in everybody the other thing is that it does still it still targets the inflammatory side of the condition and so in order for patients to be eligible for the ocrizumab and ppms is they need to demonstrate um, disease activity either in the form of a new lesions on an mri scan or clinical relapse and i think you know that's because we recognize that inflammatory activity can alter the course of the disease at any point in the disease regardless of whether you're progressive or not uh, but these drugs do target that inflammation and that's why they work best in these patients so that's oclizumab and then a similar story for siponimod which is a completely different drug so it's a tablet it's a bit like fingolimod in that it's an what we call an s1p receptor modulator So it keeps the white blood cells within the lymph nodes in the body and prevents them getting kind of into this, into the general circulation and then up into the brain. And that similar kind of outcomes in in clinical studies, reducing confirmed disability by between one in um, one in four to one in five. And again, was found to be much, much more effective in patients who had evidence of disease activity. So again, to be eligible for siponimod, you need to have secondary progressive MS and demonstrate either new lesions on an MRI scan or relapse. If you have progressive MS and you've been told previously that, you know, there, there's no drugs for you, um, is it worth now revisiting your, because sometimes we see a lot of these pa- yeah. people fall out of the system a little bit because they don't tend to go and see an MS nurse, maybe because they don't have a drug to be monitored. Um, is it worth these people actually approaching an MS service and sort of saying, look, I'm, this is what's the case before? And I suppose that might might not just be for people with progressive MS. It could be people you know, like myself back in the day who were told that, oh, let's wait and see. Absolutely. No, I definitely think so. So I think it was one of our, not fears, but concerns that we'd have the services would be overwhelmed by people coming back into the service. And it, mm. it perhaps hasn't happened to the degree that we feared and, and COVID may have had something to do with that. But certainly, yes, if you've not been in contact, you know, if you've not had a recent review with an MS team, then it's certainly worth getting in touch and either getting a referral from your GP or, or, or via your MS nurse to be seen again. And what I tend to, and some patients won't be eligible. And so I don't think, you know, I, I think it's important to go with expectations that it might not be that. And I think it's important to realize we're not withholding this from people that are going to benefit from it. The eligibility criteria are there for a reason that these are the people that did best in the studies and these drugs don't come without their risks either. But yes, I think it's important to go back to your team or be referred to a new team. And what I would tend to do is obviously take a clinical history, work out, you know, the previous history of the condition. And then often patients, the trouble is often patients haven't had an MRI scan for many, many years. Mm. And so if you're, if we MRI scan somebody now who hasn't had an MRI scan for the last say 10 to 15 years, then it's not surprising that we might see a couple of new lesions, but that doesn't mean that your MS is necessarily active now and you're going to benefit from treatment. So what I would tend to do in that situation is kind of do a re-baseline scan with a view to then doing another scan in six to 12 months and assessing eligibility at that point. Um, But everybody will tend to be slightly different, but that's what I would tend to do. I think the other point is that with Ocrizumab for primary progressive MS, the eligibility criteria does say recent, so a kind of recent diagnosis. So I think the eligibility is within 15 years mm. of symptom onset. So unfortunately, if you've had MS for 30 plus years, you're unlikely 
to be eligible for oclizumab for primary progressive MS. And again, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't go and discuss that with somebody mm-hmm. and, and have a, you know, and it's always, you know, if you haven't been seen by an MS team in that long, it's always worth touching base with people again. But I also think it's worth having the expectation that these drugs might not be the panacea that people are hoping for. They help some people, but unfortunately, you know, as we've discussed, and it's a massive, I, I can't remember if there's a question later on about this, but it is a, is a massive unmet need is, you know, those patients are having progression mm. without evidence of inflammatory activity. And we need, we desperately need better drugs to try and help them. Yeah. And there are lots of trials in progress uh, for this. So, you know, drugs, so trials of, of current drugs, so drugs like cladribine and oclizumab are being trialed in patients with more advanced MS. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's a big multi-arm, multi stage trial uh, being run by the ms society which should be opening up later this year called the octopus trial oh yes which is aiming to find treatments for kind of the progression the actually the progressive bit of ms so there isn't anything kind of that targets that non-inflammatory progression but we are working on it and the other thing to say is that you know what i don't have we don't have the scope today to talk about all the possible kind of symptom management questions which you know, and, but I think that's a really, we mustn't forget that part of it when it mm. comes to progressive MS. And there are definitely things that people can do for themselves. So there's lots of evidence that actually lifestyle modifications are, you know, as important in the later yeah. stages in more advanced or progressive MS. So giving up smoking, making sure people maintain levels of physical activity within their ability, yeah. so, you know, to help their cardiovascular and cerebrovascular health and looking at kind of diet modifications as well that can really what you want to do is think of your brain as a kind of reserve system and you want to kind of make that as healthy as possible because unfortunately ms has damaged bits of that but you need everything else to be working in its best yeah well that makes sense and um, if you tried and failed on a number of dmds um, including some of the, the the strong the stronger ones what other options are available so yeah so it depends a little bit what you mean by failed and we've touched on this so if you mean failed by you've got you're still having relapses and you've still got evidence of disease activity um, on the scans then so we would kind of generally it depends a little bit on your clinician but you would potentially work your way to another highly efficacious drug because just so for example if you've been on Alum, if you've had alamtuzumab and have had disease activity on alamtuzumab, that doesn't mean that oclizumab won't work for your MS. Right. But the next step, which we would be eligible for if you've failed a high efficacy drug. So when we say high efficacy drug, we really mean oclizumab, ofatumumab, alamtuzumab or natalizumab. And some people put cladribine in that group as well. Then you would be eligible for consideration of stem cell transplantation. So that's, again, probably a podcast all on its own, but autologist um, stem cell transplantation is currently carried out mainly in London and Sheffield for patients who are eligible within the NHS. And there is an upcoming, well, there is an ongoing study as well looking at stem cell transplantation in patients that have failed a first line disease modifying therapy and then trialing stem cells against the other high efficacy medications. 
So that's, and I refer patients down to both London and Sheffield for stem cell transplantation. Not many, because I think our disease modifying therapies are increasingly good. And I have increasingly few patients that are, you know, failing in terms of inflammatory activity, Mm. Uh, but that is certainly an option. Certainly have seen much more of people coming through on on stem cell treatment the last few years than, than, so it seems like it is less difficult perhaps for people to actually get the treatments these yeah days. It's, it's a challenging it is i think access is one of the big challenges and one mm. of the difficulties is the site availability for it and like i said currently the main i think it has been done in a few other centers for local but it's mainly access to i know for example locally I've approached our local haematology teams, but you can imagine a particularly post-COVID, mm-hmm. they're overwhelmed with haematology cancer patients that need treatment. Yeah. So there's a real issue with capacity within local teams as well to, and, and within the, the national teams. Yeah. But if a patient thinks they're eligible, then they should bring that up with their healthcare professional yeah. and they can be referred to London or Sheffield for that. How about this then? If a person has been on a DMD for a number of years, is there any stage where you would actually consider coming off it or being without the DMD or or is there sort of an end, <laughs> an end, an end date? Point. It's a really good question, isn't it? Because I think we start these drugs and we're really good at starting them and mm. we're not quite so good at stopping them. And so, and I've talked about this with a kind of colleagues from across the country and I think I think because of the, the, the number of drugs we're, we're starting and we're, I think, become, we're getting to the point where we need to be upfront and say, look, this is going to be your drug for perhaps the next two, three, four, five years, and then we'll reassess. And that's not to say we'll stop it then, mm. but we will have a consider that you're still eligible, it's still working, you know, it's still doing what we hope it to do. And again, we talk about we could talk about rules and we could talk about ideals and what I think should happen. So if a patient who's been on a disease modifying therapy for relapsing remitting MS is kind of diagnosed with secondary progressive MS, the rules say that that disease modifying therapy should be changed or stopped, Hmm. stopped essentially. And I think this has led to a big reticence within the MS, the kind of MS community Hmm. at diagnosing secondary progressive MS. That said, I think there are a group of patients that, and actually it's the patients that have been stable on a disease-modifying therapy for many, many years, and are perhaps are getting to their late 50s, early 60s, where we know the natural history of MS, the likelihood is that they're less likely to have relapses in terms of inflammatory activity. And so the evidence is that for those patients, it probably is safe to stop certainly a first line disease modifying therapy so i often frame this to patients as a dmt holiday Mm -hmm. so a i think that makes it a lot less scary because i think if you've been on a disease modifying therapy for a long long time you know you it becomes a little bit not not a crutch in a kind of negative way but it becomes part of who you are and what you're doing so i actually frame it as well let's let's stop this let's do a scan and again in six months time and if there's no evidence of new activity and you've had no clinical relapse then we can you know keep monitoring you not just say goodbye at that point but you know it may be safe to stop mm. but I think with clinical experience and having done a lot of reading about this I think you know the patients I would feel most comfortable with this are those who are really like I say early 60s have had the disease a long time and have been on a first line therapy so not the highly efficacy mm. treatment but the first line therapy so the injections or the oral treatments Um, And then I think it is safe to consider stopping. And I think the other thing 
to and, and I don't think this should be seen as a negative thing necessarily because I think we also want to be aware that we want to be treating everybody's MS with the right drug for the stage of their MS so for example if somebody did have more had you know developed more progression over the years they haven't had any relapses but their walking has become a bit more difficult they need to use a stick to walk they're not able to walk as far as they need to and so there is a suggestion of progression despite disease modifying therapies and they've got to the age of say you know 60 61 around that then actually stopping the disease modifying therapy and then assessing for disease activity may enable you to then say okay well actually do you know if there are new lesions or relapse actually there's progression here, but there's some activity. So actually something like saponamod might be the most effective disease modifying therapy for you at this stage. So it's never about shutting doors. It's about making sure that people are on the right disease modifying therapy for them at that time. That makes sense. Uh, one question that's not on here, but, but something that I've wondered about a bit is if you, because obviously when we have with an MS service, we, we like it when, like you're saying, you have involvement in your treatment and, and you, you know, the neurologist takes an interest in how you're getting on. But if you've been sort of told that, no, um, I don't think you need to go on a DMD or sort of the more old fashioned approach, if, as I would call it, um, yeah. can you sort of kind of contest that a bit or... I can fully understand if it's like, oh, you're progressing or you're not eligible or you're this. But if you are sort of on paper eligible, but the neurologist still says no, when you kind of listen to this podcast, perhaps and think, well, actually, <laughs> maybe I yeah. should be on it. Maybe um, you should ask me. To, no, um, so, I mean, there, <laughs> I expect a flood of referrals. Yes. Uh, yes. I mean, I think it's always reasonable to ask for a second opinion. Mm we're a bit we're not we don't really like this within the NHS because I think as doctors it challenges us you know but actually we're not always right and we may and, and everybody has a different way of approaching things as well and also I, I'm well aware that across the country MS is being looked after by patient by by clinicians that don't always have the most up-to-date information about mm. MS it's an incredibly busy more complicated field than it ever was but yeah. due to service arrangements and, and ne necessary uh, you know service arrangements patients may not be looked after with, by a neurologist with an interest in MS or a specific uh, experience and, and knowledge about MS so hopefully most are and we're moving towards that but not everybody is and so I think it's entirely reasonable if you don't think that you're getting the advice that is in line with what your research is about then it's in totally, I think, reasonable to ask for in a second opinion. And I, it, it'll vary from place to place how mm. that is accessed, but it's often via your GP um, referring you to a centre somebody else, somewhere else. So I think, yes, ask for a second opinion if you're concerned. I think that sounds really good. Um, as a sort of final, final question, if there was one sort of takeaway thing that you would like to leave people who are, considering going on a DMD, but might be newly diagnosed or it might be someone who's had MS for a while. What's the sort of one first approach you think people should do? So I think be clear about what your goals are and what your preferences are, and then be prepared to ask questions of your team. Um, we, we, I'd rather somebody came with a kind of list of questions and, a, you know, even if I've answered those before they even get a chance to open their booklet, at least they know it's there and it's been answered. So try be informed and don't be afraid to answer questions. I think that would be my kind of my top tip for listeners. 
I think that's brilliant. Thank you so much for taking part today. It's been really informative. And I hope people um, have learned loads. I know I have. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kate. Okay. Now, if this was a commercial podcast, here's where there usually would be an ad break. But as we're a charity, we don't do that. So instead, we'd like to tell you all about some of the information that the MS Trust have about DMT. As well as information on all of the different disease-modifying drugs available, we also have a selection of personal stories on our website. As well as that, we also have a nifty tool called MS Decisions. So you can just go on there and compare all of the different options available to you and kind of see some of the pros and cons and how they may fit in with your lifestyle. So just head over to our website and our HZ and look under D for disease modifying treatments or have a look in the episode show notes. Now over to the second part and Emma's chat with Sam. So hi, Sam. Lovely to chat with you today. Are you happy hi. to just start off by introducing yourself? Yeah, so my name's Sam, I'm 31 years old and I live in Norfolk with my partner and our Labrador and I live with relapse and remitting MS. Um, are you happy to sort of tell us a little bit about your MS diagnosis? Yeah, so I was diagnosed seven years ago this year, um, just sort of past it and it, it feels like it happened at the same time as it was quite a build-up to it, it did happen quite quickly I think like it's not until I think back and say oh actually there were a few like niggling problems on the lead up to it like on and off I was having a few issues with my hands and like losing sensation and grip and things like that but doctors were like oh it's carpal tunnel whatever just sort of like got pushed away and because it would get better I kind of got into the cycle of like ignoring it which sounds really weird but it's you just get used to like things that are happening and then it improves and I wasn't getting anywhere with like my GPs so I just kind of let it be and I was like on and off having issues with my bladder and I thought well maybe I'm just getting UTIs things like that but then seven years ago uh, in the summer it was like my walking so I ended up in hospital because the numbness just spread up my legs and I just couldn't walk so I always think oh it's quite quick because I was only in hospital a week and in that week in July, I had a lumbar puncture, an MRI and left being told that it was MS. So it did feel like it was a quick turnaround. But I suppose I, I was having minor symptoms for a few good years building up to it. But I normally, when someone's like, oh, what's your diagnosis story? I normally just cover that week because that seems to be like when everything sort of like crashed like a wave. And I said I had to go into hospital and couldn't it wasn't those things I couldn't ignore it when it was my legs because I just knew it was the same feeling that I was feeling in my hands mm -hmm. like starting at my ankles and creeping up so I was like oh this is a bit worrying and then yeah when it got to that point um so yeah left hospital I had to wait for I think my like official diagnosis was a bit later in the year because I had mm -hmm. to wait for the um lumbar puncture results and stuff but the consultant that was in said to me he was like 98% sure from the MRI that it was MS so I, the, I, I'm pretty sure they got the ball rolling at that stage so I think things happened quite quickly so I don't think they held off until they had the lumbar puncture results so yeah that, I'd say that's the, the start of it all. Oh that's good that they were quite proactive then I guess it was yeah. probably quite a full-on week for you though what were some of the things that you felt initially when you found out about the diagnosis so because it all happened I was really lucky that actually the consultant that looked at my MRI was just visiting for the day 
and he was a specialist from the other hospital that I then ended up getting referred to so I was quite lucky really because I think someone else had looked at my MRI and been like "Mm, I'm not sure and then he looked at it and was like no 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 like 100% I know what this is um and I, I didn't know anything about MS like at all I'm pretty sure I thought it had like an R in it like multiple scleros I don't know like or didn't have the L I literally had no idea about it so I wasn't too overwhelmed I always feel like I remember thinking like feeling relief because I was so ill and I hated being in hospital that week I then had this doctor saying to me like we know what it is we know how to make you feel better we've got a plan of action like we've got multiple choices for you like let's get on top of this so I personally took away relief from it because having that opportunity of like oh I, I'm gonna feel better and on the last three days so they let me go home and then I was just an outpatient they gave me a steroid infusion and it helped me get better so I think I whether it was naivety at the start or what I was like oh they've made me better like mm-hmm. perfect so yes yeah, so it wasn't it wasn't too like traumatic or overwhelming for me I said it was relief that I actually finally knew what was wrong with me because I had been ignoring so many little things for so long. It was nice to to have something that then we could work with. Mm, yeah, obviously, like an MS diagnosis is not like amazing news, but it's sometimes, yeah, a lot of people yeah. say it's just having those answers, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. I think how I kind of viewed it is it's it's happened. Like mm-hmm. there's, there's nothing that can change the diagnosis, that it is what it is. So it was good to have it to to know what to do with it, if that makes sense. Like I wasn't going to have to just like carry on struggling and feeling the way that I was permanently, like with no knowledge of what was going on, like within my body. So, yeah. and when you talked about how the the <clears throat> health team had sort of introduced some different plans about how to go forward with it, um, was that when DMDs were mentioned, or was that a little bit later on in the process? And how did they um, approach that? I think that. DMDs from what I remember were mentioned at my first referral appointment so I think when I I said I was fortunate enough that I did have a specialist consultant that happened to be there so I do remember that he didn't like name anything or go into detail but he did sit down and say there's a lot of medications out there there's different ways to manage it you know we'll, we'll get you a referral in and we can go through it and then definitely at my first appointment DMDs were mentioned by my the neuro that then like, I was introduced to and did they sort of did they give you leaflets or talk it through did they give you like a whole spread of information How did yeah you- so I think what I remember my neuro gave like a real vague overview of like what was out there um didn't really go into detail of each one just kind of said like there's this that this you know there's plenty of choices um what we'll do after this meeting is you'll go through to an MS nurse and they'll go through with you in more detail so then my time spent with the neuro was more um just answering any questions that I might have about the diagnosis and just generally a bit of a chat really introducing us and things and then when I was with my MS nurse they actually went through in more detail like the different medications and um 
I know it's, it's only been seven years. I always feel like when I tell this story, I sound like I'm being like 35 years ago. <laughs> but I remember when I was first diagnosed, um, I was given like an MS Trust booklet. Well, I was given quite a few. And one of them was like MS decisions for the different treatments. And my MS nurse got it out and she went through it with me. And it was just literally like the end of the booklet. So the end of the booklet opened up as it normally would. And it had like all of the different options across the whole thing. And now because I've changed MDs a few times, I've had a like newer booklets and I've spoken to people that have been newly diagnosed and they, it like folds out. And so it's crazy just in the seven years, like how many more medications have been added and approved and signed off. So I always think that's really mental. But yeah, yeah. my MS nurse went through, um, they kind of had an opinion on a select few that they thought would be good. Obviously, it was my choice completely with all of them, but they gave their professional opinion and then they went through it all with me and I was kind of given the details to go away and think about it for a bit. Did you do like more research and look at some other resources when you went away or did you just go back to the booklet? Yeah I think I just mainly looked at the booklet and the website and like just some of the hospital printouts they'd given me so um, just like charts and graphs and things that they had that just uh, went through like how frequency of taking them um side effects and things like that and I just used that and the MS Trust booklet to, to go through it. Did the side effects play like what sort of role did the side effects play in um, when you were considering which one to go on were there any major um, things that you considered? No there wasn't anything that really scared me too much because I think they were keen for me to start Tecfidera which is what I did start but also they had mentioned like there was injections as well and looking back, I think that was a bit ridiculous of me, but I was so scared of taking tablets. <laughs> I was terrible. And Tecfidera was massive. So I was like, maybe I should just have an injection like, mm -hmm. and do that. But I think logic took over and I was like, no, uh, for me, like a tablet was just easier and fit into my lifestyle a bit more. So, but I don't remember there being any side effects that outweighed like the you know like made me think oh no I don't want to do that because of that side effect because my team were really reassuring um on like being monitored during the time so things if anything was to happen it'd be caught early and stuff like that and I know like with Tech Badira, they did tell me that sickness and nausea and stomach problems when you're getting used to it so I think because I was briefed on everything when I was because I was quite unwell from Tech Badira to start with um, I wasn't too worried because I was told that it could happen so and was it the being unwell that sort of made you look at other options after being on no no that was just I think when I first started Tecfidera you have like two weeks of a half dose I think just to get your stomach used to it so it was just the generic like sickness and it was quite heavy because I was like terrified of taking tablets I'd gone from taking nothing like pretty much my whole life to this like really strong medication so I think it just took my body a little while to get used to but um no I stayed on that for quite a long time really maybe like nearly two years 18 months um it's just because I had a few relapses on it that we decided to change it over so yeah that's fair enough and then yeah. what was that kind of like when you 
sort of had to review your DMD and start to think about other options did you feel like you were kind of starting back from scratch or was um, it kind of not so bad because you felt like you yeah. learned some things yeah it wasn't too bad really because in that time that's, there was some newer ones that had been added even then um, and Galenia was one of them which was another tablet and so even though I was offered infusions and stuff at the time I was a bit like oh I think I would still personally rather just try another tablet so I wasn't too I didn't feel too like from the beginning because I knew like how many were available so I was kind of like okay but you know it's not going to work for everyone some people it does great some people it doesn't but there's so many other choices I'll try Galenia but then that didn't work <laughs> so so yeah so then I've had a relapse on that as well so that's when I did make the decision to move over to an infusion and I had Lemtrada mm-hmm. and how did you um, find that obviously it's a bit of a difference like you say going from a tablet to an infusion yeah that was it was a big choice but I feel like because it had been put into the back of my mind just before I started Galenia, I'd had quite a long time. So I think I was on Galenia for like nearly a year. So I was, I did have quite a long time to, to make, fully make my mind up and come round to it and stuff. So by the time it got to it, I, I was very like set. I wasn't like self-doubting or anything because I'd made my mind up. So I think even, even potentially without the relapses, I'd been like looking into it and trying to decide whether it was something I wanted to do. So that helped that I'd come to terms with it myself, like rather than being forced, like mm-hmm. my hand forced into having it. So yeah, so I had both rounds. I had one in 2019 and then one in 2020 as well. And then your the one you had in 2020, was that sort of after the pandemic had started? Um, was it? No, it was delayed. So my first one was March 2019. And then it was meant to be March. Uh, it was like the beginning of April 2020. But it got delayed because of everything. So by the time I had it, it was mid-August, I think. Um, was it? Yeah, I think it was mid-August. <laughs> it was sometime around then. Because I know I had to go. I went into hospital in like June or July um ready for it but I had a water infection so I had oh, to go no. home I was so <laughs> upset like finally I'd like got there but yeah um yes yeah, so it was in August 2020 that I then had it did you feel sort of any nervousness about going into hospital during that time or was it um all right yeah not not really I think it helped that it was my second round and it wasn't like like I kind of knew what to expect and everyone was being so like due diligent and that so yeah it didn't it didn't feel too scary and in August even though it was in the height of it at least it was like summer mm-hmm. and things had been changed where I was in like a room on my own and a few things like that and everyone was wearing masks and things like that so yeah I think it was kind of one of those things it's, it's got to be done so I'm gonna do it yeah I think there was a, a time kind of where some people who perhaps were new to DMDs as well they were kind of a bit more reluctant to go for the yeah based ones in the I think because the it was like halfway through mm. I was like well I, I need to have this done so yeah I'll go cool. for it uh, then I'm on Ocrevus now <laughs> yeah I was going to say do you, do you want to talk about which one you're on now so that uh, Ocrevus is an infusion based one as well as yeah Limtrad, yeah so that's every six months mm-hmm. um yeah I had a I I just relapsed a lot 
I relapsed just before Lamchada, during like in the middle of the courses and pretty much right after it as well. And my MRI, like the comparison one showed that well, it hadn't worked, you know, I'm sure it did like help some ways, but showed that it wasn't exactly what they wanted to do. So I moved over to Ocrevus in, I think I had my first round of that in August 2021, so a year later. And how did you decide on Ocrevus this time? Was it kind of you kind of got this your head one, around the infusions? or Yeah, so in this time, because when I went for Lemtrada, Ocrevus wasn't offered then because I think it was right at the beginning of them trialing it. So in hindsight, I probably would have chosen Ocrevus over Lemtrada, personally. Um, and the support group that I'm part of, so many people are on Ocrevus. So, and I see them talk about it, even when it wasn't something I was looking at all the time. So that one felt, I felt comfortable with it. And I was only given, because I'd like ticked off a few, <laughs> I was only given that or Tysabri as options. Okay. Um, but the hospital that I have to go to is a good like two hours away. So with Tysabri being every month, it just wasn't really feasible with work and that. So that was kind of, you know, a mixture of both how well I saw people doing on Aquavis and the fact that it was every six months. So it wasn't as frequent. Yeah, I think I've seen a lot of the like personal stories or people I speak to if they're kind of yeah, like younger and things that you seem to be on yeah, lately. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, it's nice that you say that there's other people that you know that are on the treatment. So you yeah. can it's really good to like get other people's personal experiences Asking, of it. Yeah, see mm-hmm. how they've got on with it and things. Um so after obviously going through that and being on your fourth DMD, how Obviously, you said the first time round changing wasn't too bad because you knew there were lots of different options um, out there and available to you and they kept expanding. Do you kind of feel still feel the same or is it still a little bit like mentally challenging to kind of go through that process again? Yeah, I think it was easier than I thought it would have been moving over to Ocrevus because when I remember when I left hospital after having Lemtrada, I did kind of think, oh, like, that's it and then I thought oh what would happen you know I had that brief thought of like what would happen next but I kind of just was like well I'll cross that bridge when I come to it and then like looking back at or ahead I thought I thought it would be more of a problem or like I'd find it more difficult than I did the transition I think because everything happened so quickly I didn't have time to sit and overthink it um I had a relapse and then they were like, let's just get you in for an MRI. They fast-tracked my MRI results, was told it wasn't this. And I think all within one appointment, they were like, let's, let's try this. And then I was like, okay. Like, I think they gave me a week to think about it. I was like, yep, yeah, sounds good. And they were like, let's get you booked in. So I think because everything happened so quickly, that definitely helped. If If I was left longer and it was like, oh, this hasn't worked for you, let's see what there is now and I was like just kind of left in limbo for longer I think it would have been harder but because they were like right there with a the plan of action I was like okay let's, let's go with this one then <laughs> yeah that's good you were so busy like thinking about the next thing that you don't yeah. really have time to sort of dwell yeah. on it yeah I think that's good because I think some people obviously like you know everyone uses their own language and things but some people use the term like failed on a DMD and I think that can sometimes yeah. put too much onus on your like you as a person yeah, you haven't done anything it. wrong I sometimes say that but by accident mm-hmm. like, I don't know if I did just say it because I think oh that failed 
that I've spoken to count like the neuros I have and it's not to say that it failed at all like one thing that I can only put down to Lemtrada or just it's just one of those things is I did have like massive bladder problems and I used to have like bladder Botox and stuff but since having Lemtrada that's it's not like a miracle cure but I haven't had to have the bladder Botox and it's been so much better so and I was relapsing quite a bit so there's nothing to say that Lemtrada didn't help mm-hmm. it just from their professional stance they can do more to help me so yeah, yeah. so I try I try yeah I do try not to say failed because especially like if people then are going into Lemtrada I don't want them to think they wouldn't work for them because everyone's different and yeah that's, different that's medications true. work for different people so you know the last thing I'd want to do is like scare anyone off and be like oh that that doesn't work because you know it probably does <laughs> yeah exactly it's like you know to really simplify it's yeah like some people it's like there some for a reason and, like, it's obviously yeah. proven to to help well, yeah that's so. why there's the options isn't there because they work yeah. for different people's lifestyles and things yeah have you kind of obviously not trying to like be really negative but have you thought about like any other steps if Ocrevus turns yeah. out not to be the one so um at the moment I'm like I don't know I'm not in limbo I'm kind of sticking my head in the sand a little bit <laughs> I've got an MRI on the 15th of August okay as a comparison one so fingers crossed hello yeah, yeah to see if um if it is stable then great like they've said let's stay on Aquavis and that is what I would like to do mm-hmm. if it's um got any new activity or or anything like that I have already met with a neuro in London about HSCT um so he wants to see the results from potentially it's like a road we could go down if this is if this isn't uh if it's not stable so We'll see. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure it'll be fine. Um, and they yeah. are they saying that that would be possible on the NHS if you went ahead with that? Yeah, they're all a bit woolly about it. I haven't had yeah, like a yes because I think it depends on the results. But my neuro from Cambridge in February referred me um, to someone in London, and they they did want to see. You know, I took I've taken so far as like good the fact that they haven't just like sent me a letter and been like no like you won't Mm. qualify for it like I did go see someone and meet them on the 5th of July and go through everything and then this like MRI results was like the next step so but I guess yeah there's There's no no point like think like you say no point like worrying about it until you've had the MRI yeah and I like I proper swing from a pin like like mindset to mindset one minute I'm like I really really want to stay on Aquavis like I don't have to do that and then the next minute I'm like I, I do really want to do that so but then it then it's like a real like messes with your head because mm-hmm. when I'm in the mindset of like no I really want to do HSCT I'm like but then am I wishing for my res- like MRI results to be bad you know like so it's, it's difficult that's why I've just kind of stuck my head in the sand a bit I'm just yeah. like because I have been doing quite well like on Aquavis so I'm just enjoying that and yeah whatever will be will be yeah, well, hope, fingers crossed and obviously good luck yeah. with your MRI in a couple of weeks. When you went through the process, sort of just going back a little bit, when you went through the process of changing DMDs, did you mm-hmm. kind of consider different things each time or was it a similar sort of thought process? Yeah, so I think with the tablets, I I just spoke to a lot of like family and things to see like, I know a lot of them didn't want to answer. So I was like, oh, what would you do? But it's it's just nice to hear what like people's like input and stuff would be. And because I was like out traveling a lot for work and like at the start of what 
I perceived as like building my career I felt like a tablet would fit into my lifestyle a bit more because I could just chuck it in my handbag it didn't have to be like refrigerated or anything and just Mm -hmm. carry it around with me um so that was definitely it was like lifestyle as well as um like efficiency like with the medications that kind of weighed it up for me and then when I went over to Lemtrada and Ocrevus, I think it was more just like a bit more reality of like, right, uh, let's, let's just put life, you know, all that on the back burner and do what's right for me because everything else will still be there at the end of it, if that makes sense. So yeah. I went into Lemtrada and I was like, takes like recovery takes as long as it takes, you know, and then on the other side of where to do things. And the same like with Ocrevus, I was like, well, I'll go for the infusions and if I have to have some downtime, I have to, but if not... Did you notice any sort of big changes or impacts on your lifestyle when you switched from, like, the tablet versions to some of the infusions? In all honesty, I was really poorly from Lemtrada. So it, each time it did take me quite a while to bounce back. But I don't regret it by any means because I think it did also help me mentally. Like, so I just was constantly forgetting to take the tablet. So like, if you're a really organised person, it's probably great. But I was constantly forgetting. And then I'd be like, oh, no, have I taken it? Have I not taken it? Like, do I skip it? And especially with Tech Vidira, I think I had an issue where I was, I would, like, forget one. And then it would make the side effects worse again because my stomach would have kind of got used to not having it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so I, I was glad that I did make the switch because I think for my own mindset, it helped that I had it done. And then I could just like get on with life to the best of my ability. (laughs) Yeah. Some people obviously prefer not to take any medicines or um, drugs at all. Was that ever a consideration for you? No, it it wasn't for me. I think because I felt so ill when I was in hospital that time. It, yeah, it just wasn't. Even though I've never taken like a lot of medication before, it's literally just down to me being silly and not being very good at swallowing tablets, not because I'm like anti it or anything. Um, but no, it, it it wasn't ever really anything that crossed my mind. Um, and to be honest, at the time, I don't think it was even said to me. Like obviously it was fully like, this is your choice and that, yeah. but I don't, I don't recall anyone saying, you could choose to not take anything. Like, I don't think the idea was even put in my head. I, I wasn't pushed by any means, but yeah, I it didn't. I wanted to be on something. I know what you mean about the tablet thing. When I was younger, for like it was only like five or ten years ago that I managed to start to be able to to take tablets. Like I used to have cowpole when I was ill because I couldn't swallow I know, a tablet. So terrible with it. I used yeah. to have to like have like a full glass of squash and drink loads of it just to take the contraception pill which is oh like gosh. half the size of a smarty or something like, <laughs> yeah they are really yeah, so i was like i'm never going to be able to take tech for because it's massive but i am grateful that i went with that because now i can swallow tablets yeah you sort of <laughs> and it got me over it. my fear so yeah. yeah it worked out everything works out in the end <laughs> Yeah, I, went, I remember being in hospital once and they were like, just take this tablet. And I was like, I can't. And they made me eat it with jam. And I was like, I can't. Still, oh. it just still wouldn't work. Because jam's obviously like smooth, isn't it? So yeah, glad I'm not the only one who had that struggle. No, you're not. <laughs> um, So just to finish up then, really, what advice would you give to someone who was either at the beginning of their DMD journey or perhaps looking to make the switch themselves? I would say definitely get like your professional advice or their opinion you know and I don't know like some people 
they might not want to hang off the word and mouth of like what their neurologists or specialists say but I think it's at least important to take it on board because you know they're they're specialists for a reason so I definitely listened to what they had to say and took on the recommendations for what was like their preferred and then after that speech like friends and family would say as well like not like so your close support group so like I said like close family and close friends and see what they think and because they might think of questions that you don't even think of which is something I found at the beginning of Tech for Dira like I'd say something to my sisters and they'd be like oh but what about this or what about that and I'm like oh I don't know actually so it's nice to kind of get like someone else's opinion um your partner if you're with anyone so I I've been with my partner for 11 years this year so we'd already been together a chunk of time before. So it was really good to have someone to like sound off to. And then one thing that I couldn't do in my first decision, but has massively helped in like my later decisions is like finding online support groups or communities of people that actually are living with MS that are kind of like around your age or that you can kind of relate to a little bit lifestyle and stuff because especially with Ocrevus, I didn't need to ask the question because I've seen so much of it. But I see all the time on groups that I'm on, people will be like, oh, I'm I'm thinking of starting um, Galenia or Maidenclad or Tysabri. What are people's experiences? And then everyone will list. And so I think that's really good insight as well. You've just got to remember to take some things with a pinch of salt because some things are going to work great for people and vice versa. You know, something that works amazing for you it didn't for me but it doesn't mean that it won't for someone else so I think it's just a case of yeah just learning as much about it as you want to feel comfortable and then knowing that point to when to kind of switch off like with HSCT done like no end of research on it but then someone and it was great advice someone I spoke the last person I spoke to that had had it said to me I'd perhaps stop now, Sam, with personal experiences because you can't guarantee that's what's going to happen to you. So, yes, it's a bit of a balancing act, really. But I think just, yeah, gather the information that you want and sit with it yourself and see how you feel about it all. That's a really good tip, actually, like you say. Yeah. It's about getting all the information but not overwhelming yourself. Yeah, you don't want to, like, yeah, you don't want to... I think it's good. It's definitely good to see people's, like, highs and lows of things. But the last thing that you want to do with that information is be like, oh, my God, they haven't had a relapse in like 10 years. I'm going to do that. That's what happened for me. And this, or the other way around, like, oh, that didn't work for them. That won't work for me. You know, it's, it's just about putting common sense to it, really, with the information you're told. And what are, I think you're a member of MS Together, is that right yeah yeah yeah. what are some of the other groups that you found or support pages that you found really useful these days I mainly only really use MS together because there's so many people in there and there's such a wide then um network of people that are on different medications but when I was first diagnosed then then full well may have been groups out there I just I wasn't aware of them Mm -hmm. the only groups I could find were specifics and they did help so I joined a tech for Dira group and I found that so helpful because MS nurses, if they're busy or if you've got a question that you just like need answering straight away or someone's advice, you might not be able to get it from them. Whereas from the Facebook group, I'd be like, oh, what foods do people find help settle their tummy? You know, like experience mm-hmm. like that where it's not a scientific fact. So 
you can't you can be like oh I'll try that you know it's not that um and just things like that really like oh how do people cope with the flushing they get or oh like what have people done if they forgot to take a tablet so I do think that the the groups for whichever medication you're on are really beneficial as well yeah it just sound like they're really useful to drop a sort of quick question yeah in. just a quick question where you're just curious what other people do um I, I definitely found the tech for zero one really helpful I must admit I didn't then join an Ocrevus one or a Lemtrada one but I think that's because I said I was at the start of my journey and it mm-hmm. was all new to me and then through other groups and you you just pick stuff up along the way to yeah of course sort it yourself but yeah cool yeah that's brilliant so thank you um that's all right obviously thank you for joining us today as well and uh, sharing your experiences so openly yeah no thanks for having me it's been fun and we're back uh that was a lot of information in both of those chats <laughs> very interesting i thought as well i i've never had so many questions to ask any guest as we did <laughs> for Kate uh, and she did really well in answering them all I thought but plus because I actually threw a few extra at her as well um, but it's it, it, it really shows how confusing a topic it is and I think you know still a lot of people I'm not completely clear what the difference bet- between a disease modifying treatment and um, uh, symptom treatment is so I mean in MS you have this uh, kind of three different approaches to treatment you got the disease modifying treatment who is you know there to to sort of try and prevent relapses really um, then you can have steroids if you're having relapses that you get offered if you are having a relapse and it sort of tries to uh, make you get over the relapse quicker and then obviously you have drugs for symptom management which will be you know things for pain or the MS hug or or continence issues and things like that so so you know it, it is a minefield to start with and sort of understanding what the different things do and I think um yeah, it's not it's not easy when you get given a choice of so many drugs either. No, especially as, you know, typically a lot of people who are considering taking a DMD will be at the beginning of their MS diagnosis. So it's not the only piece of information that they're going to be ha- having to take on board. It's not, you know, you have to consider all the different DMD options, learn a little bit about a condition that perhaps you've never heard of before, think about talking to those close to you, which obviously we discussed in the last podcast episode. There's so many things to consider. And then, yeah, to kind of have to understand the difference between all of these treatments and drugs. And the names as well aren't like straightforward names. So if you're not medically minded, you know, that I think even at the trust, we kind of struggle to pronounce some of them or you you find people say them slightly differently. And it's only like later that you realise you're talking about the same drug. It's just so many different ways that you can say it. So there's just, yeah, it's not an easy topic, but um, it was really great to hear from Kate because I think she helped to shed a lot of light on some of those, some of those issues. Mm. And I thought also Sam's journey uh, was very interesting because one thing that I've sort of learned from working here for so many years is that, you know, some people get offered a DMD at the start and then they stick with it for the, you know, for the unforeseeable future. Mm-hmm. Or then other people like Sam, it goes sort of up and down with what you're doing. Um, as I mentioned for myself, I was never offered any when I was first um, diagnosed because the, they thought I was doing uh, well, even though the first year I had quite a lot of relapses. And it was funny because I started working at the Emma's Trust and there was a few people that sort of questioned that I wasn't on any drugs because they said, well, but you did have, I think I, the first year I had about four relapses. 
Um, so they were saying, well, you would actually qualify for, because back then, Tysabri was like the strongest hitting drug. I, I think because my, my neurologist was sort of saying, no, you're too well, it's fine. And I was considering having children. I sort of thought, okay, well, maybe I will wait for a bit. Um, but then after having the kids and I sort of thought, well, actually, now it's the time to get on drugs. Um I obviously hadn't had any relapses then enough because back then you had to have two relapses. I think Kate said that it changed now. So um, some of these um, requirements for different drugs is uh, it keeps on changing all the time. But back then it was you had to have two within a year. And I got optic neuritis um, about a year after I had my second son. And then I was sort of just waiting, you know, to see, well, will, will another relapse happen? What's going to, you know, it, and, and, um, then strangely, I think four, no, 13 months later, I ended up having another relapse um, and uh, then sort of went to the to the neurologist and sort of said, look, this is, I know it's technically it's longer than, than a year. And they were like, well, you know, let's let's get you on one then. Um, so that was back in 2016, I think I started on it. And since then, I think now you hear all the time people being newly diagnosed and being offered it almost straight on the spot. It's it's a tricky one. And, you know, if you have questions, do get in touch with us because this is some some of the things that we answer all the time. And I think also another thing that is useful is that if you join, say, like our Facebook group or or other organizations, groups and things like that, to, to ask people about their um, their kind of personal experience on drugs. But it's worth to mention, sorry, I'm talking all the time now, <laughs> but it's worth to mention that different people act differently on, on different drugs. So the drug that I'm on is uh, the, the one that uh, Kate was mentioning, that you can get a lot of flushing and also a lot of gastronomical problems. I've never had any stomach problems at all with my... I do get the flushing off and on, uh, but not always. And I try to sort of um, manage it by taking, make sure that I've already eaten. I don't take it on an empty stomach. So I don't take it first thing in the morning. I sort of take it more towards lunchtime when there's already some stomach contents there. Um, but, you know, and some people have ha had horrible time on that drug. Other people like myself doing really well. I haven't had any relapses since I started. So, you know, fingers crossed, I'll stay on it. Yeah, when I spoke to Sam, obviously, she talked about how she'd found different support groups and things like the Facebook group really useful because it was just kind of there's a difference between reading an information booklet and getting people's personal experiences of different drugs. But we also kind of discussed the importance of accepting and kind of taking it with a pinch of salt that, mm. you know, people were going to have different experiences. At the end of the day, we're all different, um, you know, like when you go to the shops you have a different taste in food so you're not going to buy the same as someone else in their shopping basket it doesn't mean you know that everyone has to do everything exactly the same so what works for someone else may work for you but vice versa it may not work for you but it may work for someone else it's just kind of really good to get those personal experiences and kind of if it's a treatment that you're perhaps new to have a bit more understanding before you go in mm. because you don't want to kind of go in and then think oh this isn't what I thought it would be like or you yeah. know especially with if you're moving from like a pill drug to something like a treat uh, an infusion treatment mm. instead yeah and I think also I, I guess yes 
definitely take some bits with a pinch of salt because it's kind of like before you started on it, you can get yourself very scared if you read because there will always be someone on social media that will be like, that was the worst thing ever and this was horrible and you feel like, oh my God, <laughs> I don't want to do this. But what I found was very useful that when I first started taking Tech Fidera, um, I joined one of those uh, Tech Fidera Facebook groups and could get some of these tips like, oh, well, actually it's quite good to eat peanut butter with it or, you know, these things. Um, because then... And, and if you had any side effects that you think, oh, maybe is this, is anybody else having that? So for instance, we've seen recently in the Facebook group, people are saying that they get a, a runny nose, not like snotty, but just like mm. water running from the nose being a side effect of, of Tecfidera. And there was quite a lot of people that said that, that, yeah, that happens to them. So I think things like that can be sometimes very useful because then you know that, okay, well, that side effect is probably due to my medication rather than something else. But then always, always talk to your health professional if there's anything, because I think the worry with all these things is that you go and ask people who are not medically trained <laughs> in what you should be doing uh, or like, you know, I want to stop taking this drug. Should I just stop it? And it's like, no, 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 no. You go and talk to your MS nurse or your neurologist about this. They don't just uh, listen to to people on the Internet. <laughs> mm-hmm. So if you start having like a side effect or some sort of symptom that if you weren't on a DMD, you would go and see a doctor about mm-hmm. don't write it off as being a side effect and ignore it. You know, if there's blood involved, if there's lots of pain, yeah. you should always make sure you're getting that checked out with a health professional or your GP or something. Yeah. I mean, it's so easy to put everything down to MS and, you know, it's not always MS. So, yeah, always, always go and talk to your doctor. Um, obviously, as we mentioned, DMDs can be very confusing and daunting, but please do remember that we're here for you. So the MS Trust Inquiry Service is available 9am to 5pm, Monday to Friday, excluding bank holidays. Uh, so if you've got any questions about life with MS, give them a call on 0800 032 3839 or email ask at uk. And our next two podcasts will be on the topic of sex and MS, uh, one for men and one for women. Uh, or for people who identify as either. Uh, now, we know that this topic is not something that everyone feel comfortable talk about, um, but we'd like to change that as we think it's a very important topic. Um, so if you have any questions or any stories that you'd like to share, uh, we'd love to hear from you uh, and your comment might be featured on an episode and you can drop us a voice note or a message via WhatsApp on 0745830326. Alternatively, you can email my story at mstrust.org.uk and it can be totally anonymous. Um, we, as we say, it's a very difficult topic to, to, to talk about. Every time we post about this on social media, we can often see that people are reading the articles, but they don't necessarily comment on it. Um, so yeah, don't, don't worry. We won't publish any names or anything like that, but it would be really interesting to hear people's uh, real um, opinions about this. Just a note to say our WhatsApp service isn't monitored by our inquiry service team um so if you do have a question on ms that needs answering rather than just a comment or something for the podcast you're best off getting in touch with them on that number we mentioned before which is 0800 032 3839 or the email at ask at and you can also find the ms trust on facebook youtube twitter and instagram and you can find this podcast on spotify google and apple podcast and amazon music and also now on youtube Uh, and get in touch and like they say like and subscribe you know spread the word let people know about this podcast Um, and we would also finally like to say a big thank you to Anne Chapman Audio for the music to this podcast